the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. All right, nine minutes after 10 o'clock, we continue into hour number two now. Thanks again for joining us on AM 1420, The Answer, this Wednesday, the 25th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord 2020. Before I get to my guest, as promised, I want to respond to something, because I just got a note uh, via Facebook from somebody, and I always encourage you to follow me and ask me questions, make comments on Facebook and Twitter at France Radio, F-R-A-N-T-Z Radio, all one word, no spaces, no underscores, France Radio. Somebody just said, I agree with TJ and I disagree with TJ. Uh, because TJ just called and talked about how the uh, uh, young kids today who are missing their sporting events and their high school activities and so on and so forth, if this is the worst thing they ever have to deal with, then they're doing just fine because there are many more difficult challenges in adulthood that await. And, and I agree. I agreed with that. And I said, you make a very good point from a, from a big picture, picture perspective. But the message I got on Facebook said, yes, there will be other disappointments in the future to come. But for these kids right now, these are very real disappointments. And I do agree with that. I will not belittle that at all. My son is a rising senior. He is a Division One college football prospect. He is uh, he has got just extraordinary goals for himself. And if he misses his senior season of high school football, if you don't think that would be an enormous, an enormous disappointment and and utter pain for him and for everybody like him. And, and it doesn't even have to be a uh, a big time player you could just be a participant but it, it, this stuff means a lot to, to these kids and i will not diminish that either i know for a fact and for some maybe it's their prom for others it's their graduation ceremony and walking across that stage and getting that diploma these are very real disappointments these kids are feeling and i don't want to belittle them by saying if this is the worst thing that happens to you you're doing fine um i will say that to you 30 years from now you might look back and say yeah that sucked but boy oh boy that was nothing compared to x and and I think maybe there is some room on both sides of that for discussion. All right, so get, having said that, now let's get back into the issue of the day, which, of course, is the latest on the Chinese coronavirus. Where is it? Is, is the curve flattening? 
Um, are we getting better? Are we closer to getting back to normalcy? What is the real medical uh, uh, situation here? And joining us now to answer, I always say I'm not a doctor whenever I talk about this, and I try not to play one on the radio, but we do need a doctor to answer questions that the rest of us cannot answer. And Dr. John Davidson is an associate professor at Case, uh, the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, also division chief of interventional radiology, and he is a physician with university hospitals. Uh, Dr. John Davidson, thanks for joining us this morning. How are you? I'm good, Bob. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So I don't know if you're on a speakerphone or not, but if you are, uh, try to pick up the handset. It'll be a lot better for our listeners. Uh, I'm right that here. Oh, that sounds so much better already. Thank you for that. Okay, um, Dr. Davidson, I want to start with your Facebook post that you made either last night or this morning. I read it this morning, so when you actually put it up there, I don't know. Uh, and talk about um, you have contacts in some of the epicenters globally of uh, the coronavirus and its spread and its infectious rate. Talking, of course, about China to start where it started, and then Italy, which surpassed China as the uh, having the most fatalities as a result of this. You've talked to physician friends in both places. Can you give us an update as to how things are going there, and how do you think that translates into what we are experiencing here? All right. So that's a, it's obviously a difficult question to answer, but I do have friends and colleagues all over the world. I have also traveled personally to China um, within the last couple of years. Nothing recent, of course, thank God. Right. Um, but a lot of these, you know, it, China's a difficult situation, right? Because we talk about this all the time. Uh, do we trust what's coming out of China? But I tend to trust my contacts that I have on the ground there and some of the doctors that I, that I hear some of this personal information from. And just as recently as a couple of days ago, I have you know colleagues from around the country in China, and they all tell me that they seem to have, if not leveled the curve, but start to are actually overcoming the virus at this point. You know, it's been about two months exactly since the breakout in Wuhan. And as we all know, they completely locked down that city, but they seem to have controlled it. Um, now, whether you believe that or not, that's a whole other story. So what this does is it acts as somewhat of a reference point to us here that social distancing and some of the things that our government has asked us to do has worked. Um, so I think that's a, a good focal reference point to look at. Um, Italy, on the other hand, as we know, a free liberal democracy, people kind of went out and did everything they wanted to do and didn't necessarily listen right away. And we saw a huge outbreak there, and we continue to see a huge outbreak there. Now, there's a lot of apples and oranges there, right? We're not Italy. We're not China. We're not any of these countries. But I think it's the best model that we can at least use moving forward. Dr. Davidson, um, <clears throat> you mentioned uh, Italy not doing everything they were supposed to do. The other thing they didn't do right out of the gate, Dr. Fauci has talked about this. He, of course, is on the White House uh, um, coronavirus uh, response team, headed up by the vice president. He said that the most important thing, that the mistake that they made, is they didn't, they didn't close their border to Chinese. Uh, and, in fact, many have pointed out that many industries in Italy uh, have been sold to Chinese companies, and they have then imported Chinese workers to Italy, which led to that. That one of the things we did was cut off um, travel from China to the United States and then eventually from Europe to the United States well, and that, uh, as well, and that has made a big difference. Um, so is, are we to suggest that if we just keep everybody who is infected, and I know that's what social distancing is all about, but keep them away from large masses of people that this is all going to go away? And if so, what kind of a time frame are we talking about here? 
Well, that's the question of the day, right? And I think that's where we all struggle with, is how long are we going to have to stay in this type of environment? And I think that people at a lo- at, in a large basis are not going to want to do this for a very long period of time. It's human nature, right? We don't want to be pent up in our homes all day. This is affecting businesses tremendously. <laughs> yeah. um, there has to be some balance between how long this goes on and getting our economy back and running. Um, you know, the data from China shows two months, um, you know, they, but obviously they did what they could do and they basically locked down an entire city. I think that what we're doing right now is actually working pretty well. Now, look at the country at large. You see that we got a horrible, horrendous outbreak in New York City, for example. We all know this. But Ohio, you know, I'm personally cautiously optimistic that we're doing some things really well in Ohio. And if you listen to the president and other government leaders, we talk about maybe we could open up things in a piecemeal fashion. I think that's probably realistic. That could be realistic in, you know, in a couple weeks' time to a month's time, let's say. Okay. We don't know. We've got to take this at a day-by-day basis, look at the data, look at the data points, make sure that we have some control of this virus. You know, we have to use some metrics to understand that what we're doing is not only working, but it's preventing from what could be coming. We are talking to Dr. John Davidson from Case Western uh, School of Medicine and from University Hospitals. Um, we're, we're, I want to get into your areas of expertise now on the medical side of all of this. Uh, and anybody who's got a question for Dr. Davidson about the virus, about the symptoms, about the recovery time, about drugs, et cetera, et cetera, if you've got a question, he will take them now at 216-901-0945 or 888-281-1110. Dial now. We'll put you on with Dr. Davidson. And I want to start with some of the Facebook questions that I've gotten since I uh, put this up earlier today. And I'm going to start with the very first one, which is, what does the timeline look for uh, look like for us in Ohio? Um, and the reason we ask Ohio, of course, is we're doing it a little bit differently than some of the other states. I think there are about a dozen states of which we are one that is on stay-in-place orders or shelter-in-place, stay-at-home, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, they're on that in New York, too. But New York is seeing an explosion of cases. They, it is kind of considered the epicenter. So we're doing it. New York is doing it. New York is exploding. Is Ohio in that path as well? Or uh, it, You know, again, to give a timeline is going to be almost impossible, to be honest with you. Um, I certainly don't want to supersede what the Ohio Department of Health or our, or our governor is saying. Uh, because they're not certainly giving any timelines. Everyone wants to know a timeline. But to answer the question of why it's exploding in New York and why it potentially isn't in Ohio is pure geography, I think. I think, you know, those of us that have traveled to New York know you have 9 million people squeezed into a, you know, a several-mile radius. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a very, very tightly compacted, dense population. And socially distancing can somewhat be impossible. I mean, we complain about staying in our homes and, you know, doing the things we do, but we have the liberty of going outside a little bit, taking a walk, getting some fresh air. I mean, imagine being in a, you know, three to 500 square foot apartment in the middle of the Bronx somewhere. I mean, it's difficult to control it, number one, and it's so densely populated that it's just, it's just exploding. And we're seeing from this virus that it's transmitting much more rapidly than the influenza did. Uh, to give you an example, influenza probably transmitted on a one-to-one to maybe a one-to-two-person basis, meaning one person's infected, they can transmit it to one other person, maybe two other people. What we're seeing is here is one person can transmit this to as many as five different people. 
So you start seeing these logarithmic expansion models where one person gets it. We've probably all seen this. It can transmit very fast and very rapidly. And what adds to that is this tightly, you know, dense, densely impacted population. And I think that's why we're seeing this in our major population centers. Dr. Davidson, how, though, this is the thing that has uh, stumped me for the last couple of weeks on this. Everybody says what you just said, that the, the coronavirus um, it's, it, it is transmitted much more easily and from, from few people to more people than the flu. And yet, and we also hear that it is has a higher mortality rate than the flu. And yet, the actual number of deaths in the United States, a few hundred compared to the the deaths in the flu uh, from the flu, extraordinarily low. So, if it's more transmissible and more easily transmitted, and and it is also more lethal, why are the death numbers so low compared to the flu? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, we don't. We're only what two months into this in the world, really. December thirty first was the first reported case in China. So we're really what March twenty fifth. So, but didn't they, but didn't they go back and track that that the actual uh, the actual outbreak in China began in November and the government there buried it. They they did everything yeah, I mean, they could to hide that. So that's so coming we out. don't know when it started actually getting to other countries. Right, and I think testing is an issue too, and we can get into testing a little bit, but we're not just adequately testing enough. Mm-hmm. The numbers we have, and it's a small data point right now compared to what we have for the flu. Um, if you want to take the H1N1 uh, comparison, which was 2009 to 2010, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that infected a tremendous amount of people. 60.8, yeah, I, I have the numbers because I talk about them on a regular basis. 60.8 million Americans, not worldwide, Americans were infected by that and over 12,000 deaths. But the fatality rate was what? Was was very low, 0.2%, I think, worldwide, right. is what the mortality rate. So that's the key here. Right now, what we're seeing worldwide with the coronavirus is we're seeing a mortality rate. We're guessing anywhere, it depends who you talk to, anywhere from 0.8 to some models have it as high as 1.5 to even 2%. Those are probably way high on the high end. But even if it's at 1%, let's say, which I think most experts say where it's at right now, and again, we don't have a large data point right now, that's still on a factor of potentially 10 times higher than, than influenza or the H1N1. Yeah, and, and the, the thing about that mortality rate, doctor, that bothers me as far as how reliable it is, is the data is, is, is admitted by all medical health professionals unreliable because they're saying that we don't know how many people have it who haven't been tested, and, we, and, and then we've also been told that there aren't enough tests to test everybody that has it, and at the same time, we have doctors like Dr. Acton saying, by the way, if you feel like you're symptomatic of it, stay home and treat it, don't get tested. So how can we know what the mortality well, rate is when, not at, when we don't have the right testing numbers? And, and you're right. We all know, I mean, it's out there. We know the testing in this country has been was horribly unprepared. Uh, we can discuss whose fault that was. Um, but regardless, we are. The reality of it is we are horribly unprepared testing. I don't know if you, Bob, or your audience knows that currently at our institution, it's probably taking about three to five days to get test results back. So think about that for a second. That's crazy, right? We're waiting to get these test results back. Now, what's optim- the optimistic look at this, though, is it's getting better. We're improving every day. If you listen to the president's press conference last night, you heard that we're testing as many people to- in total that they did in South Korea that we yeah. found in eight days. Yeah. We're getting better. Not only are we getting better, we're testing more people, but the FDA just released a 45-minute test kit, which admittedly is going to probably take a month to get out to the market, but we're getting better. We're getting now from three to five days to maybe one to two. My guess is by next week, we could potentially be down to within a day. So we're getting, a, we're testing more 
and we're getting the results back quicker, which helps us tremendously. Two, two hospitals in Denver, I just read, Dr. Um, are, um, are reporting in-house COVID-19 testing, and they are getting the results in 24 hours. Uh, so that's, yep. uh, yeah. And, so it's, and, it's getting better. But to get yeah. to your point about what Amy Acton had said, and, and you pointed out a contradiction there, I think what she's trying to say is there's the reality is our testing is flawed right now. We have to preserve our testing for our most highest risk people right now because of that, which is our healthcare workers, which is our high risk population. So we cannot, unfortunately, test everyone right now. Yeah, in an ideal world, we'd love to be able to test everybody right. because then it'll get us that valuable data points that we so greatly need. Doctor, uh, we've got people who have questions, both online and on the air, um, and we're at a break here. Can you hold on and, uh, and come can. back on the other side? Okay, good. Sure. Let's, let's do that, because we're actually way past our break. It's 1023. We'll take a time out and come back with some questions for Dr. John Davidson on AM 1420, The Answer. Something inside you is feeling like I do. It's it all. Okay, it's 1025. I want to get uh, right back to um, a conversation about the actual virus and questions people have with Dr. John Davidson from uh, Case Western Reserve and University Hospitals. Robin from Lodi is on the air as well. Robin, you have a question for Dr. Davidson. Go right ahead. Hi. Good morning, doctor. Um, My uh, son is 18 and his girlfriend is 16. She works at a local restaurant. Her mother works at a local hospital in a geriatric unit um, here in the Lodi area. And my son and daughter, I mean, my son and his girlfriend keep going back and forth to each other's houses, you know, thinking it's okay to kind of shelter in place together. And my husband has diabetes, and he's also out working in the, in the world because he has to for his job. So I just don't know if it's it's okay for my son and his girlfriend to be seeing each other during this time or if they should take a hiatus from seeing each other. Robin thank, you for the, Robin, thank you for that call. Appreciate that. Go right ahead, Doctor. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll answer that to the best of my ability, but um, we really, really need to try, at least during this very, very fragile time period, to try to distance as much as possible. Um, and that and that goes with reason too. I mean, we have to protect our elderly. We have to protect the sick. We have to protect the immunocompromised population. Uh, we go through this on a daily basis with all of our family members. I mean, I, I'm affected just as much. We try to socially distance. But if you need if you need some contact during the day, all we can say is practice good hygiene, wash your hands as much as possible and really try to socially distance. I have a 15-year-old kid. I mean, he wants to go out and bike ride with his friends. I mean, I tell him it's okay. Try to keep your distance and wash your hands. Easier said than for a 15-year-old, but we can't. we got to practice this with some level of reason. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great answer. I think many people are tra- experiencing that, too. In fact, I threw that question out last week after the uh, um, uh, first uh, – Stay at home. Well, I don't know if it was exactly when the stay at home. I guess when the first social distancing recommendations were made, and I asked parents uh, on Facebook. I said, "Hey, who's letting their kids hang out with their friends? Who's letting their kids go outside and run or or go to a girlfriend's house or whatever?" And, and the responses were varied. Everybody had a different point of view, but everybody did say what you just said. Whatever it is, make sure you practice the right hygienic habits. Stay, keep your distance if you're going to be around other people. 
sneeze and, and cough into your elbow and do not uh, do not uh, touch your face with unwashed hands. That is a and big Bob, part of if this. I can add real quick, from a scientific perspective and a medical perspective, I think it's very important for your audience to know that this is transmitted by droplets, okay, which means if somebody coughs on you, somebody sneezes on you, that's when you become in contact with it. So, you know, that's why the six-feet rule is actually in place by the CDC. Now, as you know, it can exist on surfaces. We've seen this. But the chances of really developing an infection from this, from developing a surface like six to eight hours later, is probably very low. But again, good hygiene. Speaking of surfaces, I want to give you this one from Facebook, Dr. Davidson. Uh, David asks, Dave Speck asks, how long should you expect or we expect the virus to survive on surfaces such as gas pump handles? So I saw that question, so I'm somewhat prepared for it. But um, it can, there's some studies that show that it, it could last for days, but that should not alarm the public. So this is science. They're seeing the evidence of some, somewhat of the virus remaining after a couple days on certain surfaces. Does that mean it's a really infected form of the virus? Probably not. Now, if somebody goes and sneezes on a gas, you know, a gas pump handle and you go pump your gas right afterwards, could you contract it? Yes wash your hands. Or if you can't wash your hands at a gas station, use, try to use hand sanitizer if possible. I think a lot of gas stations now have some hand sanitizer. Yeah, they do. And, and you know, the, the gas pump handle is a really good question for a larger um, uh, avenue, I suppose. Uh, what I mean by that is there are plenty of things that we are all going to touch that have been touched right. by other people's bare hands. I, you go to the grocery store, which is allowed, of course. You're allowed to go to grocery stores even in your stay-at-home orders by the state. You know, every freezer handle uh, is being grabbed by multiple people as they go in and grab their frozen foods or this, that, or the other thing. Um, and, and sometimes they're moving the frozen foods around so they can get to the ones yep. in the back to see what the dates are, to see what the different flavors are, blah, blah, blah. You're going to touch tons of things that other people have touched, no matter what we try to do on quote-unquote lockdown. That's exactly how, how, how do we deal with that? Do we need to be like well, in between touching each handle? I better squirt the sanitizer well, in? Well, Bob, that's what I was just about to say. We can't live in a bubble, right? I mean, <laughs> we're humans. We can't live in a plastic bubble. There's a movie about that 30 years ago with the boy I in a remember plastic it. bubble. We can't do that. We have to practice reason. We have to try to remember to wash our hands as much as possible. If you can't wash your hands, you know, you're in a public place, try to use hand sanitizer if possible. But obviously, we're not going to be able to do this like you suggested at every second of the day. Just do your best. That's all you can do. And if you do your best, science shows that you'll probably be able to ward off the virus. Doctor, I never got to ask you about hydrochloroquine and the promises of these anti-malarial drugs and other things like that, and we're out of time here. Um, I've got more time if you do. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I know you're a busy minutes. guy. I have about 10 minutes. you got about 10 minutes. Okay, let me take our, our bottom-of-the-hour news break here, and we'll come back as fast as we can because I've got more people who have questions, and I do want to get your thoughts on the uh, uh, the potential game-changer as it's being described with hydrochloroquine and ZPAC. So we'll do that on the, quick, on the flip side, and we'll get you out of here quickly. Thank you so much, Dr. Back after this. Okay, 1035. We're going to come back right, uh, right back with Dr. John Davidson. He is a uh, physician with University Hospitals. He is also uh, a professor at uh, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And uh, Dr. Davidson is answering your questions about the coronavirus. Uh, doctor, if you're all set, we'll go right back to more calls. We'll just I'm take here. a few minutes of your time. Yeah, I know you've yep. got to get going here, so we'll spend five minutes with more calls from Tony in South Euclid next. Uh, Tony, you're on the air with Dr. Davidson. Go ahead. 
Yes, real quick. I know you have much time. Tony from South Ukraine. Listen, um, I don't know why they didn't first, the government or the, the health department, why they, they didn't first focus on all the vulnerable people, the elderly, the sickly, before they just, uh, you know, jumped the gun here and started started locking, you know, everybody down. But And one other thing, the, uh, the restaurants, I'm glad they shut them down because I've been calling the health department six months before before this uh, epidemic about how these businesses are using, not all of them, but a lot of them. And you can look back. So, Tony, i got to get to the question, buddy. We're, we're really short on time. Yeah, so I just want to know why didn't they just focus or why aren't they just focusing? It's probably too late now, but on on the elderly and the most vulnerable and the most sickly instead of everybody else has to suffer. I haven't been sick I haven't been sick this year at all. Okay, okay, can... Tony, it's it's a good question. Let me let me let the doctor get to that now because yes. he's yes. he makes a good point. Thank you, Tony. He makes a good point, doctor. Yes. Um, obviously, we know that the highest rate of infection and the highest mortality rate is among the senior citizens and people with underlying health conditions. So, why aren't we maybe focusing on quarantining them rather than the rest of the population? So it's a great question, obviously, and he's right. We're too late for that anyways. But to to try to answer that question in, in simplest terms is that this affects everybody. We know it affects everybody, whether you're asymptomatic or not, and that's the problem. Um, some studies are showing as high as 80% of people can be completely asymptomatic and not show any symptoms at all. So that's the issue. The issue is of you or somebody else or myself or somebody younger than me that has it, doesn't know it, is carrying it, and then transmitting it to the to the high-risk population. And it's just a basic premise that we don't have enough understanding of this virus or this disease process yet, at least at the time that order was made. So, in other words, you just have to basically take the population and say, stay at home until we figure this out. Now, it's an interesting point because moving forward, we can certainly move this way and we can stratify our data points to saying, hey, maybe this population is more at risk. We know that the elderly is, so we can start opening some businesses in a more systematic way. Bottom line is we need to figure out a way to control the virus and get our economy up and running. Both are not mutually exclusive. Um, doctor, I want to go uh, to a question that came on Facebook before we came on the air <clears throat> Excuse me, today about hospitals and hospital workers. Obviously, they have to stay open to treat all of these people. What changes are being made at institutions like yours, at university, for example, to make sure that you and your colleagues stay safe from patients who are infected? So that's one of the, I mean, this is, this is overwhelming our time at this point. You know, we're seeing a big drop off. We all know about the elective versus non-elective or essential versus non-essential procedures. The governor made this order a week ago. We all had to come up with a list of what our essential and what our non-essential procedures are. And this is all in preparation to A, not expose our potentially at-risk population to the virus, but most importantly, to conserve PPE. And everybody keeps hearing PPE, but PPE is just a very fancy acronym for our hats, gowns, gloves, and masks. And believe it or not, we're at a shortage. We might not be at a level that New York City is, for example, but we are at a shortage, and this is a big problem. It's a big problem here. It's a problem now where we're we're re-wearing masks. We're wearing one mask at the beginning of the day, and we're trying to preserve that mask. There are some procedures that we would have maybe inefficiently had been wearing masks where we now feel like we don't need to wear masks. We're making decisions based on preserving our PPE for our most valuable and our most sicker patients at this point. And it's a problem, and we know this because it's all over the news.
Doctor, I asked you before the break, and I'll uh, finish with this. I want to get your opinion on the malaria drug, uh, the hydrochloroquine or chloroquine, uh, and the combination uh, of some way with with ZPAC that is getting such promising results. I, I was listening to Dr. Oz on television yesterday or Monday. I think maybe it was Monday who was referencing a French physician who was doing research on this, who said in 32 or 36 patients that this was tried upon in his trial, um, they, they were, they, 100% of them had, uh, I, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm struggling with this. The, all of the patients had 100% of coronavirus infectiousness, and I know this is, I'm butchering this, at the time of the trial, uh, and then after five days, all of them went to zero. It literally ran its course in, in five days as opposed to the two weeks plus that many people are, are, um, recovering, you know, from in this particular case. So there's a lot of real positive things that people are pointing to with those drugs. What's your read on that? So there are a lot of positive things, and I think our president is right to to put this out there as being promising. But we have to we have to be cautious. And I think Dr. Fauci had actually addressed this either yesterday or at a press conference a couple days ago. We have to be cautious in certain respects. Number one, the FDA has a process of approving these drugs for a reason. We got to make sure that they're safe. Um, number one, we're seeing a lot of these anecdotal examples, which is what I call the, the French study that you pointed to. There was a physician in New York, a family practice physician, just yesterday that was on Sean Hannity's program that showed in 350 patients, every patient got better or their respiratory symptoms resolved. Okay? This is great news. This is all great news. But none of these are really to the point yet of being scientific where we can actually stratify these. We do things called randomized control studies, things where we really look at the science. Make sure that these drugs are safe. The flip side of that is, well, we got a problem right now. Let's just start using them. What do we have to lose? We have to worry about certain things. These drugs now are being used for our populations that have rheumatoid arthritis, um, lupus, for example. They're approved. They're working for these. There's a shortage of these drugs now that somebody that might have rheumatoid arthritis and can't get these drugs. The Ohio State Medical Board just issued a warning last night and a ruling. I don't know if you, you or your audience is aware of this to carefully monitor prescriptions that are now written for this because they're being inappropriately used and utilized by doctors and healthcare workers. So we've got to be very careful to balance whether this is going to really work and getting it and making sure that we have enough supply to keep it in the hands of what it's really approved for right now. But overall, I'm optimistic. Of course I'm optimistic. Anything that might work. Um, we're doing a trial right now at UH, at University Hospitals, with the use of hydroxychloroquine and z There's another drug out there that we're also studying. So these are things that are exciting. They're optimistic, but we gotta we got to balance that between just rushing out to the pharmacies and taking it. Dr. John Davidson, uh, University Hospitals and Case Western Reserve University. I'm going to let you go now because I know your time is short. I really appreciate the great insights and the answers to all of the questions. Uh, continued success to you, and stay safe and uh, stay healthy, sir. Thank you, Bob. Everybody stay safe out there. You got it. Thank you very much, Doctor. Dr. John Davidson joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, we had to make up for some uh, business uh, in the pre- prior segment. We wanted to get the doctor back on earlier, so we'll take our time out a little earlier as well. Uh, but we are coming back with your phone calls after this on AM 1420, The Answer.
1047. Wow. We really made up some ground there. We've got a longer final segment than we normally have. I'm impressed. I'm, I'm impressed. Well, way to, way to manage the load there, uh, Dr. Andrew. Appreciate that. Uh, all right. Uh, thanks again to Dr. John Davidson, who is a real doctor, unlike Dr. Andrew, uh, for his uh, insight and his analysis. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of the program answering your questions the best we can. Taking your comments, 216-901-0945, Just got a note, not a note, an alert came across my screen, Fox 8, uh, reporting that, these relief checks that are supposed to come out, if and when this is passed by the House, remember it's only the Senate that agreed upon this with the White House yet last night at about one thirty in the morning. Uh, they have to have their vote today, and then the House is going to deal with this, and Lord only knows what we're getting with the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, the Wicked Witch of the West Coast, Nancy Pelosi. But if this thing is passed, the earliest, according to what Fox 8 just reported, that you would be seeing your checks would be May. Um, earlier reports said they could start being cut as early as the first week of April from um, from the federal government, but it looks like now they're saying the earliest you would see that money in your hands and in your accounts would be May. So we'll continue to stay on top of that, obviously, and answer the questions the very best we can, but that's the latest report I just saw. Tanya is calling us from Akron. On AM 1420, The Answer. Tanya, good morning. Go right ahead. Good morning, Bob. Um, I, I had an issue with um, Mayor Cuomo talking about how much, acting like a spoiled child, saying what he needed. Um, I sent you a thing on... Uh, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, Tanya. Page. Tanya, hold on. Did you mean Mayor de Blasio, or did you mean Governor Cuomo? <laughs> Governor Cuomo, either one of the spoiled brats. Both of them are little spoiled brats. But they okay, both. But, but but the reason I asked. Hold on, hold on, Tony. The the only reason I ask you for clarification is they've been a little different. Andrew Cuomo, for all of his flaws and faults, et cetera, et cetera, has been much more kind to the president, complimentary of the president, and willing to work with the president than than uh, De Blasio has. De Blasio has been just a punk through this entire thing, passing the blame True. to the federal government, et cetera. Cuomo has been more fair, I think, a little bit uh, than the other one. So I, that's the real reason I wanted to make sure what you were talking okay. about. Yeah, well, true. But yesterday, uh, Cuomo was a little bit off the charts, too, crying that things didn't happen and he didn't have the stuff that he needed. When as governor, he could have bought them a couple years ago, but he decided to invest in the lottery. So I, I have this thing that I don't know if you've ever read the thing called the eye pencil. I have, yes. Um, okay, so most people are ignorant to the supply chain. They think that because they want something, it shows up immediate. And it's just for me, being in business, is that our ignorance is showing up. I know this is a critical thing, but our education system has truly failed us in teaching us how long it takes to do something. And if GM and Ford can trans... Uh, put their plants together so they can make um, ventilators. That talks about American ingenuity, and we don't give business enough. We want to bang up on business and talk about they're greedy, bad people, but they're coming, and they're becoming saviors. We have heroes in, the, in our medical corps. But we have heroes in the business establishments, alcohol, I mean, Alcohol manufacturers are making hand sanitizer now and giving it away. There's a lot of great things that are happening You're in right. the midst of this terror. 
and we're and our media only wants to focus on the bad. Like this aid package, they exclusively put the Trump kids and the Trump business in it, but they don't say anything about Nancy Pelosi and her family getting all kind of money and putting the Planned Parenthood in this bill that's supposed to be helping families and businesses, but they want to fund Planned Parenthood on the back of it. I'm just a little bit perturbed about that. You know, Tanya, economics. I'm with you. <laughs> I share your perturbance, if that's a word. I don't think it is, but I share it. Perturbed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, no, yeah. There, there are a lot of good things going on, and, and there are a lot of things that just make me very irritated and very angry as well, especially when what we are supposed to be doing is, and thank you, Tanya, for the call. i got to get some other people on the air, especially when what we're supposed to be doing is taking care in a unified fashion of one another and not being greedy and not trying to advance uh, pet projects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, yeah, let's focus, if we can, and maybe just at least for a little bit every day, on companies that are doing positive things, that are doing selfless things, individuals. I'll tell you what, too, just, and I want to get back to the calls here, but we oftentimes talk about the selfishness of celebrities, whether it be athletes, actors, musicians, and so on, but there are some wonderful, wonderful gestures where people are donating tons of their money to relief for other people. And these are people that we see in the public eye. Uh, and I want to give credit to them. So there are companies, there are individuals that are really doing great things, too, and we got to focus on them as much as we focus on the things that perturb us. Uh, Frank, Brooke Park, go right ahead, Frank. Thank you. Hey, uh, there's a little timeline in here. Let me get going. 17 hours ago, the death toll in Italy rose to 6,800 dead Italians. Just a week ago today, it was at 3,400, exactly half of that. Yes, sir. Okay. But, okay, I got more to say. The, there was a Chinese COVID, covert, COVID-19 expert, Sun Xiaoping, with his entourage. He's a, he's a vice president of China's Red Cross. He was okay. there on the, March 13th. That was just 12 days ago. And he met with the Red Cross of Italy. Or in Rome, which was in Rome. Now, Italy just became the largest, the highest number of deaths, 6,800. Spain's in second place, and China is somewhere below that. I don't know what they're at. But anyway, this red Chinese communist president of China's Red Cross leaves, and now Italy has more deaths and doubled what they had on the day he was there, just last Wednesday. Yeah. And I wanted to, that's, I want to bring that out. That's, okay. I think that's significant because, you know, Italy only has 60 and a half million people. If you multiply that with the equivalent population, right now they would have 150,000 deaths if they were as large as China, period. Over well, times. yeah, and although although I would, and thank you, Frank, for that information. It is very disturbing when you think about what has happened in Italy and how they did explode right past China as far as the most uh, hard hit country in terms of fatalities. Um, what's interesting is the rate because they don't have the most cases in Italy; they just have the most deaths. China still has the most cases. Italy just has the most deaths. And so that's it. It begs the question: Why? What is going on there? What are they doing? What have they been exposed to that's different? We don't know. But I appreciate the point that you are making. BJ in North Olmstead next. Hi, BJ. Go ahead. 
thank you, Bob. I'll try to brief as I can. OPOS is uh, what, the, what the real uh, stopping of the government was all about, and I'll explain that to you in a moment. But for your doctors out there, why with all the contagious diseases do we have, and everything from AIDS to flu and, and anything that we have, heart attacks, all these illnesses that are killing thousands of people every day, that did not shut the government down. This, this stuff that's going on is a pittance compared to all these illnesses that are killing people every day. Keep that in mind. The OPOS is overproduction of stuff. That's why the government was really shut down. That's what shut down, down the country during the Depression. It was overproduction. If you watch the movie Seabiscuit, the first 20 minutes of it was dedicated to the Depression of 29. We have overproduced all the, all the car shops around Cleveland. Showrooms are packed. Car, used car lots. The stores are overflowing. The thrift stores are throwing stuff in, in trash things behind their buildings. We overproduce and, and we couldn't carry anymore, and they had to shut the government down. That's what caused the depression. That's why they're giving people right now, now money for not working, because you can't. You can only consume so much. This is a world that consumes, and we have so much stuff on shelves that we're even with the shutdown, they're filling these shelves up again. So consider the overproduction as the real cause, and that's why Donald Trump's embarrassed about shutting it down and going to open it at Easter has nothing to do with this disease, and thanks for the time, Bob. Thank you for the phone call, BJ. I appreciate that. Um, I would say this, because I, too, am upset and frustrated with the number of uh, people who are being impacted by these shutdowns, and I do have my own questions as to the need for them in extreme in as extreme uh, manner as they are being as they're being dictated to us. But I will also listen to the other side, and I just had Dr. Davidson on who said the biggest thing is the reason why so many of the Leaders are um, uh, kind of falling to the side, if they're going to err on one side or the other, the side of extreme caution, is the rate of spread. As he said, the flu spreads one to two people. One person may infect one to two people. With this particular virus, it can spread up to five people. One person will infect five, who will then infect five more, et cetera, et cetera. And the rate of spread is the biggest key, which is why they are practicing this shutdown, social distancing stuff. Now, again, I am as, as frustrated as anybody. And I have been as, uh, I complain about our loss of constitutional rights as loud as anybody, but I am also going to be fair and I'm going to be objective and I'm going to say that the doctors who do know more about that type of thing than I have something to say and I will listen to them. Uh, let me get one more. Uh, where am I going? It's, uh, Dan in Middleburg Heights. Dan, you're on the air. Go ahead, Dan. I got about 40 seconds. 40? Okay. I'll try to do it quick. Just yes. the numbers here. Uh, I believe this is in America, in the realm of America, it's still the bottom line is this is political because I'm looking at figures here. In today's paper, 145 people in Ohio were hospitalized by this virus, okay? 145 and eight are dead. Through our flu season in Cuyahoga County, Summit in Medina, a related, you know, regular flu, yeah, 2,500 yeah, yeah. 2, people were hospitalized with 25 dead. Shutting down all of Ohio is not the answer. You have to... Uh, yeah, there, uh, there are some legitimate questions. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate the call. There are some legitimate questions about the mortality rate and whether or not it's accurate, as I expressed to Dr. Davidson. But that's all the time that I've got. Thank you for being a part of the show. We'll see you tomorrow. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.